Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Anna Kelly. Anna is a formal financial relationship manager for a private bank and began investing in real estate 20 years ago. Anna has purchased, renovated, and rented millions of dollars in real estate across numerous asset classes while working full-time and raising four children. She recently retired from her corporate career after creating financial freedom through real estate investing. She has active ownership and manages a rental portfolio valued over $60 million and has invested in over 1,500 doors as a limited partner. She's an Amazon number one best-selling author and runs a meetup group for women in real estate and also formed REI Mom and coaches new investors and enjoys helping others to overcome fears, increase knowledge, and minimize their risks uh, when starting to invest in real estate. So thank you very much for being on the show, Anna. Thank you so much. It's my honor to be here today with you. So I briefly touched on your background. Are you able to expand a little bit on yourself prior to starting? I know you have three different real estate businesses now and education businesses uh, current to your, uh, your current real estate businesses. Sure. So as you mentioned, about 20 years ago, a little more than that, I started out working for Bank of America in their private bank mm -hmm. department. And so what we did was uh, we worked with the top 10% of our, our wealthiest clients, both personal and business. And we helped them to basically nav navigate their finances. So we would tell them about, you know, the different products we had available from insurance to annuities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, um, and, try and CDs and things of that nature, and try to bring, you know, their capital into the bank and through our products. And so one of the interesting things that I discovered in, um, in starting out as a very young person myself that really didn't have assets, but had been trained to talk to people about what to do with theirs is a lot of my wealthy clients had real estate. And in fact, one of them said to me one time when I was telling them about the returns that, you know, we, we were paying out through an annuity, he said specifically, I make so much more than that in real estate. Why would I invest in an annuity? And it kind of made me say, huh, you know, I really don't know anybody that has real estate. Um, I grew up in Section 8 housing in San Antonio, Texas. Um, my mom worked two jobs and, you know, was very driven to succeed and do well in school. But I didn't know anybody that really knew or understood about money or had any money, to be honest with you. And so it was interesting how I was kind of catapulted into this job where I really started to learn about money and finances. And it piqued my interest to say, one day I want to own real estate. So. Fast forward several years, I was uh, pregnant with my first child in 2003 and home with him um, right after he was born and through a period of bed rest, really thinking for the first time in my life after being really driven to succeed in the corporate world to be home with my children. And I just, you know, I held that baby in my arms and I said, I don't want all of this anymore. I just want to be home with them and raise them. And how can I put them in daycare? And it was that, that deep desire, that internal, you know, instinct as a mom to want to be home with him that I knew I had to do something to figure out how to make more money so that I could leave my job and be home with my child. 
And that kind of got us into flipping houses. That was the first thing we thought we would do to make money. Uh, HGTV convinced us anybody could do it. And, and we tried and we failed, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, but we learned a lot of lessons through that. And then um, my, my husband became a chiropractor and we decided to become entrepreneurs. And so we moved from Texas to Pennsylvania to start his business. And what I noticed was that when we were trying to find space to lease, it was very expensive. And there were a lot of these uh, buildings in, on Main Street in our little town in Pennsylvania where the businesses were on the first floor and then they had apartments above them and sometimes behind them some garages. And I just started, I saw this building and I said, you know, it'd be nice to own the building instead of to lease the building. So let's just crunch the numbers. And we figured out that if we had tenants paying down part of the mortgage, it would make it easier for his business. He'd have to pay less out for the space. And so we really bought our first rental property for his business just because we knew it was a smart idea to have tenants. Uh, we moved to house hacking. We bought a, our first property here was a four unit apartment building. So we sold a big house in Houston and really downsized and took a step back so that we could move forward in the future. And we inherited three tenants where we lived and we learned to be landlords really through uh, trial by fire just to try to make a smart move, you know, in, in the midst of making a really dumb move to start a business with three quarters of a million dollars in debt in 2007 before the crash. Wow. Wow. Yeah. House hacking was the first I did with a three family, but it's, it's a great it's a great uh, way for to get started, especially with the the financing you can get for it, since it's still residential. Um, so mixed use was your first real real uh, real estate investment that you had. That is, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's awesome. Do you still own that today? We still do. My husband still leases the build, leases the space from me. I bought the building in my <laughs> LLC, and his business rents from my business. And then we have you know three tenants and four garages in that building. So you've all, you've invested in many different asset classes, starting in commercial and then going all the way to multifamily. So are you currently focused right now with your business mainly on multifamily? I am. Uh, with that said, I'll, I'll give you kind of a caveat, putting on kind of my investor hat and from the background that I have, I really think about investments in terms of those that can bring you income, those that can bring you growth and those that can preserve your wealth. And as an investor moves through their life, their focus might shift from, you know, income to then growth to then, you know, preservation. And so as an investor for myself, you know, I like cash flowing assets. I, my goal was to retire and it took me 16 years of investing to really make enough money to replace my six figure income. And I just retired in May. And I did that through buying primarily four unit apartment buildings. And so uh, my husband and I have 70 units uh, that we have in our little area that we self-manage. And that was more than enough to buy our financial freedom, to retire me, um, and to be able to then move into, you know, beyond just cash flow to get me retired, really wealth um, growth. And so I shifted right about six months before I, I knew I was going to pull the plug and retire from the, the corporate career. I had worked for AIG for 20 years. I knew that I need, it was time for me to start working with partners so that I could scale up. Because your, own, your own money only lasts for so long. And what we did is we continued to buy these small rental properties like a four unit. We would raise the values by rehabbing them, 
raising the rents, putting a new tenant in there. We'd refinance them and then we'd take that equity and use it to buy another one and another one and another one. So we were kind of tapped out into buying more. And I knew that I had developed the skills over the last 12 years to really take a, a property through its full life cycle and, and to make them worth something. And that it was very easy to do the same thing on a larger scale with more units in one location. And you could hire out, you know, a full-time property manager and maintenance person. So my focus in, you know, last year was to let's start buying some bigger stuff with partners um, so that we can really continue to escalate that growth. So the last year I've bought 200 units with wow. two partners, a joint venture. And uh, that that's really was my foray into the getting into the bigger multifamily. And I just syndicated uh, with some other partners, my first larger two apartment complexes in, in Atlanta, Georgia, 250 units. And that's wow. kind of my focus, both to develop my own portfolio through smaller rentals as we have cash that we can invest in and grow our own small portfolio. And then through my JV partnerships, you know, buy locally several hundred more units and then through syndication, you know, start operating and buying larger properties and, and bringing in investors for those. Yeah, that's awesome. When you were buying the four units, um, the four unit properties, and building your portfolio that way was you were buying everything with hard money or with cash initially, and then just using bank financing to when you refinanced out. No, I wish that that had been an option for me. But part of my my story is when we had moved here and started everything in 07, I worked for AIG Life Insurance Company. And we were at the top of the market and it started a business really in hindsight at the worst possible time. And a year later, you know, the market crashed and AIG was on the hook for a lot of money, billions of dollars, because they were one of the largest mortgage insurance companies. And they also sold some type of, uh, it's cre called credit default swaps, which is like insurance on other companies' stock um, at, at a high level. And so AIG was going under. I was told we were going to all lose our jobs. We thought we were losing our jobs. And um, it made it very difficult for me to think about buying more investment properties when I truly had no money. We were like barely scraping by, covering my husband's overhead. And within a year, the lenders really tightened up. So they did not want to lend to real estate investors and no less to a real estate investor who had, you know, three quarters of a million dollars to debt on a business startup and worked for a company that they thought was about to fail. So yeah. I could not find uh, banks to finance me. And truly, I didn't even know there were hard money investor, hard money um, brokers out there at that time. So it kind of strapped us and caused us not to really move forward for a few years. And we just worked on, you know, renovating the units that we already had rather than buying more. And it wasn't until about five and a half years ago that I really started thinking, how can I get more properties when these banks are all saying no and started looking into some creative financing. Mm -hmm. So I did a few seller finance deals uh, about five, five to six years ago, uh, found a partner to buy a couple of units with and then discovered hard money and used hard money for flips, but not to purchase our own. We basically used the equity from our buildings as the down payments and then credit lines and business credit cards very strategically and carefully to pay for the rehab until we could cash out. There you go. That's a, that's a great system. It's a great process for doing it. And um, yeah, hard money is, um, it's kind of, I mean, not you're using it when you get into larger properties, but with those smaller properties, it's a, it's a great asset to have when doing it if you don't have the cash 100% yourself. Right. Or the availability right. of the credit. But um, exactly. 
So what is your, what is your strategy now when reviewing potential multifamily investments? What do you look for? And uh, what is kind of, what are you looking to do with it? Sure. So my primary strategy is very much geared toward continuing to find an asset that's going to have the combination of producing income, having some upside at the end, but also going to preserve capital. So when we're at the height of the economy, as you know, many properties are very overpriced. And so when people pay too much for properties, they're not going to cash flow well. And if they're not really careful with their underwriting or they're buying in a bad market, maybe they're chasing yields, so they're going to a tertiary market that they really don't know anything about, doesn't have a lot of great employers, doesn't have a lot of great growth, but they think that they can make money because they can find a deal yeah. um, outside of the MSA where there's so, many comp um, so much competition. I think what's going to happen with some of these deals is if we hit a recession, then, then those values are going to go down and the vacancy rates are going to go up. And they're going to struggle to make their cash flow and to grow wealth and maybe even not be able to preserve the value of that property if they overpaid. So for me, I learned a lot of lessons by starting a business in 07 without understanding the economy and economic cycles. And I bought at the worst time and I never saw coming a major crash that could destroy my job, destroy our 401k and destroy my husband's business. So I've become a wiser investor in that I now understand uh, building cycles and economic cycles. And I believe that we are at a top, either really close to the top or already coming down from the top of, of hyper supply, meaning that there's so much supply in the market and things are so overpriced where we're, uh, the natural progression is that we head toward a recession. And there's so many economic indicators that show we're heading there that I believe that we are heading toward a recession. And that affects my, my buying in that I want to buy properties that I believe are res, uh, recession resilient. They might still go down a little in value. Occupancy rates might dip a little bit. Maybe my rents can't sustain 3% increases like we try to see. And so I've got to find properties that are going to say, even in a recession, even if some people lose jobs, even if some of those things happen, I'm buying in the right market that has a strong economy, that has a very diverse employer pool with different industries, and who has a lot of growth and really good supply demand dynamics. So I want to be in an area where it's a hard barrier to entry. It's hard to get permits and zoning and build new construction. Because if people are moving into those areas and employers are moving into those areas, but there's a, a lag in when new product can be built, or if the income doesn't support new product pricing, I know that I'm always going to have more demand for my apartment units than what there is supply. And that's going to help me during a recession um, to keep full and to be stable until we come out of that. And so... I just look for really strong markets and try to find products, a, pro, a product that is slightly older, uh, like a C-class okay, age, but in yeah. an A or B-class area. So I like the best areas with the strong school districts because when a recession hits and people have to downsize or they have to cut back on costs, if their kids are in a good school, they're not going to move. They're going to do whatever they can to stay in that school district. And if they, they might not be able to afford the nicest apartment, so they're going to downsize into like your B, C class asset, but try to stay in that A, B class area. And so that's kind of my sweet spot is finding a little bit older buildings. Maybe they're mom and pop, 
maybe the the rents are well below market because the older landlords don't have a mortgage and they can afford to just keep them low. And I like to go in and just freshen them up, add paint, you know, vinyl plank flooring, maybe paint the cabinets, um, whatever the market demands, maybe change out some appliances, maybe not, and be able to naturally raise those rents as is today, a couple hundred dollars a month. So even if we have a downturn, if I bought them at a point where let's say the rents are $700 a month, I think I'm going to get nine and then a downturn only gets me 850 or eight. I'm still cash flowing well above what I paid on a price per door basis. And so I'm going to be okay during that recession. Yeah. The, um, the C to be my C plus is kind of our target where we're looking for properties as well. And kind of what I focus on, cause for your same exact point is that, um, when there's a pullback, if people drop down, um, affordable apartments. Now people can, you know, rate, maybe the rents don't come all the way down or come down that much, but they're just not getting the increases. And what you're saying now about how expensive everything is, there's so many syndicators out there now that are trying to have, they have aggressive rent increase value add models. And if there's any type of pullback that are, they might be able to still cash flow the deal and stuff like this, but they're not going to be able to hit any of those projections of what they've said that they're going to do. And if they're buying it extremely aggressive for yeah. a high price, I mean, it's, it's going to be an issue, you know, but, um, and even as a passive investor, because once I retired, I had access to all my retirement accounts and I self direct them into a qualified retirement plan. So I'm investing in, in other deals as well. And I kid you not, at least 90% of the deals that come my way, I feel like they're underwritten extremely aggressively you know, they're thinking that they can go and raise rents and become the top of the market price with the top of the market, you know, amenities. They have rent growth every year. Uh, their exit cap rates are not really adjusted for a downturn. And, you know, it makes it, you have to be really, really careful as a passive investor when you're investing in these types of deals to make sure that the underwriter um, and the operator really are conservative at this time in the market. Yeah, I want to circle back to that in a second um, with how you do passive investing and how you how you plan on doing it and what your strategy is for it. But how do you leverage with currently when you're active investing, uh, syndicating right now, I imagine, is what you're spending most of your time on. How do you leverage partnerships when investing in addition to using financing as leverage? Sure. So I, I'm a firm believer in using financing as leverage when rates are low. So we'll start with that. You know, basically some studies have been done and, and people have a difference of opinion as to whether you should use leverage, maximize leverage or not. And when rates are, you know, sub 6%, it typically makes sense to use leverage to buy investment properties. So I don't like loans and, and credit in general for like regular spending, um, you know, it, uh, wants or needs really, you know, cars, uh, groceries, shopping trips, anything like that. But when it comes to real estate, leverage is so powerful because it allows you to basically purchase about five, four to five times the value of properties that you could purchase without leverage. It's an inflation hedge. So while inflation is eating away, instead of eating away at my money, it's eating away at the bank's money who's given me the loan. And it really protects you from legal liability because if I buy properties cash and I have a lot of equity in those buildings, if somebody slips and falls or my son gets in a car accident and they come after me, if I've got all of this money free and clear, they're going to go after that. If I've leveraged it 75 or 80%, the attorneys aren't even going to go after that because they know that the cost to dispose of it and the cost to litigate, it's just not going to work. And so it protects me to basically use all the equity that I can 
to buy more and more cash flowing properties and it increases my income and my net worth and releases, you know, reduces my liability. So I leverage as much as I can get um, up to 80%. I only use traditional financing and personally, I am not comfortable with bridge financing at this point in the market cycle, even though I know a lot of people are. Um, so I don't want to be 100% leveraged. I don't want to use temporary leverage. I want to use fixed rate long-term financing, like through the agency loans that we try to go after. Um, in terms of partnerships, mo most of my focus is actually JV deals. And so it, we would prefer to be able to buy you know, like with my two partners uh, that we bought the 200 units. Now we buy these 200 units. We plan to own them for 10 years and we own them hundred percent. So we have total control of those assets and we're really playing the long game and, and, you know, wanting to be in these great areas for a long time. And if it makes sense to refinance at some point, we'll do that. Um, but we really want these long-term stable assets where we're not having to syndicate and share the wealth with, you know, 80 or 100 other investors. Yeah. So my primary strategy is buy on my own and buy joint venture deals. Um, but I've also formed a company with one of my JV partners and we are, we are syndicating deals. And so if we find the right asset in the right markets that we're comfortable with, we will syndicate those deals and bring on investors. Uh, but it's, it's honestly much harder to do that right now in this market cycle than it is to find slightly smaller properties that we JV on and make just as much money on without all of the, the headaches and the, the, the hoops that you have to jump for a syndication. Can you explain JV and then bridge financing as well? Sure. So a joint venture is typically um, just at a very high level when just a couple of partners who know each other get together and they decide to buy something or, or start a business. And so rather than a syndication where you have an SEC registration statement or an exemption and you're bringing a big pool of investors, many of who you might not really know well, um, who are passive, that's a syndication. In a joint venture, all the partners are active and they know each other and they're buying something together. Um, they're not just throwing money in and, and sitting back and letting somebody else do the work. Does that help? Yeah, no, it's just for my investors uh, or my listeners. Sure, and the, sure um, absolutely. It's, yeah, and then with bridge financing, how do you explain that? I consider when I explain to people, it's a hard money lender for larger properties. Yeah, that's a really good, good explanation. You're basically, if you have a really good deal that works at the purchase price that you're buying it, you should be able to get agency financing where they will give you a 30-year amortization They'll give you a really good low fixed rate locked in for 5, 10, 12 years. Um, and, and you can bank on what your, your payment's going to be for the long term. When people go to bridge financing, it's usually because the deal that they're buying has something in it that doesn't make it ideal to the traditional lenders, which are hard to qualify for, quite frankly. So either you're buying a, an asset that is really distressed, and so maybe the, the occupancy is below 90% or there's um, a lot of rehab that has to be redone, or quite frankly, you're just flat out overpaying. And since you're overpaying, the property won't cash flow, won't have the debt coverage ratio that it needs to make these banks happy. So your only way to get these deals is to go to some other lender that says, I know this property isn't ideal, it, you know, you're overpaying, but I think you have a good value add that you can make it worth a lot more in the future. We'll give you this you know, temporary loan 
uh, we'll give you some time to turn the property around and then you've got to pay us off. And that's basically a, a bridge loan or, or like you said, hard money to get you through the period when you can go back to an agency and lock in better rate terms. Yeah, it's it's not for someone that's a beginner, that's for sure. Maybe not even right. an intermediate because it's very risky if you don't right. know what you're doing and you can't get refinanced. Um, so circling back to right. passive investing, I want to just touch on what you what your strategy is. Like for instance, we're looking at a deal, if we're passive investing in it, or even if we're planning on actively investing in it, we go through and look at uh, one of the things is uh, decreasing or even just pulling out rent increases over inflation and kind of seeing exactly how the model works after that. And that's where you really, that's how we really see exactly what it will do if we have a pullback. What is, what is a strategy that you guys use when you're looking at any type of passive investings? Yeah, I agree with you. Being able to, to stress test the deal and kind of say, you know, what happens if uh, this, if I'm passive, what happens if this operator can't, uh, achieve the rent roll, you know, the rent growth. What happens if this operator can't sell the property at what they think they are in the exit? What's my return really going to be? And what, and would I be comfortable with that if that happened? And if you said, you know, if a recession happens, I'm not comfortable with this deal, you probably shouldn't invest with that operator right now. And if you're an operator and you do the stress testing and, you know, you put in a, a let's say a point higher cap rate, um, if, if it's going to be a 10 year hold or maybe half a point, if it's going to be a five year hold, and if you put in, you know, flat rents and no increases and even some decreases in rents or increases in occupancy, if the deal is going to be really tight and you're not going to be able to pay your investors or pay your mortgage, it's probably a deal that you don't want to buy or you've really got to negotiate the price point so that you get it, you know, less expensive uh, so that you can make sure that you'll, you'll pan out and be able to pay your investors and, and pay your mortgage over time. So as a passive investor, I kind of look at the same things. I'm like, what type of debt are they taking on? Is it a bridge loan? And there's some guys that I really like who, who are operators or who are capital raisers who've brought me deals. And I, I trust the operators themselves, but just because it had bridge financing and just because I didn't have the same outlook for what level of rent bumps they could get, I've passed on those deals yeah. for now. You know, and maybe in a, in a different economy, I, I would have been okay with those types of deals. But I just think we have to be really, really careful right now to say, what is my comfort level and make sure that anything that you invest in, it's like a perfect pair of shoes. I, I heard uh, somebody say that and it's like, if the, if the shoes don't fit exactly what the operator's goals are and what your goals are as an investor, then you just have to pass on that one and wait for another one to come to you. Yeah, the bridge, bridge financing, as we spoke about earlier, extremely risky. Um, there's a lot of unknowns, even with agency debt, and you can do it shorter term. Um, we're doing making sure that we have 10, 12 years uh, term on that, um, just to make sure whether any type of storm or any type of market uh, disruption that happens, no matter how strong the market you're in, um, if there's a pullback, if interest rates go up and you're having an issue uh, trying to refinance it, like you're saying, 07, 08, 09. Um, I mean, that's going to be a problem where you can, where you're going to lose a property that might actually be cash flowing if you could refinance it, which is absolutely, which is a terrible, a terrible, terrible day. The, yeah, um, <laughs> I think we have to really prepare for that, quite frankly, because what happened with the last crash, and I wasn't the only one impacted, but big operators were impacted and ended up going into bankruptcy, is that banks start pulling back and where they might have refinanced you before, if your numbers aren't strong because of a recession and you need to refinance at that point, you're basically going to lose the deal. Yeah. 
And so not, you know, most people think, oh, it's not going to be a problem. I'll be able to refinance because the rates are going to stay low. Well, rates might stay low, but if the economy is struggling and banks are struggling, they're going to get rid of all their properties that have risk. And so your, your risk profile by not being able to operate the property according to your, your original loan terms um, will make you unattractive to be able to refinance. Yeah. No, it's uh, 100% correct. Um, so with commercial real estate, one thing I like asking um, to when I, have, when I interview women on the podcast is commercial real estate is such a male-dominated business. Uh, how, how does it, does it, does it benefit you for being a woman when you're dealing, do you stick out from the rest of all the guys that are trying to get a deal from a broker or trying to raise money from investors? Can you explain that? Sure. So I love being a woman, but being a woman in this business is definitely a little bit of a two edged sword. And I, I think that sometimes we're at a disadvantage, quite frankly, and sometimes we're at, at a real advantage. And so your question about, about brokers, something that happened recently, we, we had a 96 unit uh, portfolio that we were going after here in Hershey and the seller was retiring and we had tried to contact him uh, off market through letters and through phone calls and referrals from another owner that we had bought from. And he didn't really, you know, give me the time of day. And I ran into a broker. We, we were looking at another property and, and said, you know, I'd really like to buy something in Hershey. And he said, hey, we've got this seller. We're about to list it. Um, you know, would you like to see it when it's listed? And I said, please don't wait till it's listed. Like get me in now. And so he got us in and we met with the seller and so did two other potential buyers that, so there were three of us pre-market and I really spent time, you know, trying to get to know, get to know him. I rode with him in his car as we talked to the broker, you know, from one place to another and just kind of built that rapport. And at the end of it, uh, he called me, the seller called me personally and said, you know, I really like you and I'd love to do business with you. And you're just so genuine. And I love that you're doing this so that you can be home with your kids. But I promised this one guy that I would sell it to him first. So I'm going to put it under contract. But if it falls through, I'll call you because I'd love to work with you. And thankfully for me, the guy couldn't perform and he came back and he gave me the deal. And his wife, you know, told me they gave me the deal um, versus this other buyer and versus listing it because they really liked me and, and felt, you know, a connection. And so I think sometimes with guys, it's all business and you're just trying to get the deal done and it's all numbers. And, and for me, it's important to share who I am and, and to talk to them and try to build that rapport. Yeah. And sometimes I think women are just more trusted and easier to talk to than, than another guy when it comes to brokers and sellers. And so I think it has been an advantage to, for me. And I've had a couple of other sellers of really small multifamilies that I've bought on seller financing uh, tell me that they're only doing this because they love what I'm doing and, and want to help me while I'm trying to help them. So it, that's been a benefit. Um, and events and things like that. I think because I've built up a, repu a good reputation and, and I've had some success and been able to, you know, have that financial freedom that so many want, um, I, I have some more respect. But there are definitely guys who just kind of look at me and, you know, underestimate you as a woman and especially as, as a blonde and just think, you know, you probably don't have what it takes to succeed. And, and they tend to be kind of shocked when you tell them what you've been able to accomplish. That's awesome. So one last question I had in regards to, um, you know, you're, you're married, you're a mother of four. How do you systemize your business to maximize productivity? I mean, you're involved in so many different things. Um, how do you do that? 
You know, I, it's been a little bit of trial and error, to be honest with you. You know, there, there's times when I worked full time, which the first 12 years that I did this, I built my real estate business on the side while working full time and, and raising my children. And so I just borrowed and stole every minute of time that I could possibly find between work and between the kids being home. So early in the mornings, every single lunch break. Uh, four to five weeks of my six-week vacation, I would just completely work and hustle. Um, late nights, you know, 9 p.m. to 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was just it was just uh, blood, sweat, and tears for years and not really systematized time. Just every waking moment that I could, I was focused on doing something to grow my business. So since I've retired, I've gotten much better um, at, at really being purposeful. And so I, I time block my time. And I basically say, you know, I have committed that that I retired and built my my wealth through real estate so that I could have financial freedom. And that means the freedom of my time. So I'm really committed to not um, working more than about 35 hours a week because I want my evenings with my children that I work so hard to be able to do to say, you know, from three o'clock on, I'm wife and mom and I have to accomplish everything I need to while they're in school. So I've time blocked my day and I have, you know, goals for certain categories. So for example, if I want to find more deals, I need a time block time each week, uh, hopefully each day, but at least each week to evaluate deals. I need to have a time block of a section where I'm calling brokers. I need a section of time where I am um, working on off-market creative uh, marketing to try to get these sellers to get to me. I have time blocked where I meet with other investors uh, that, that might want to invest with me or where I'm meeting with other uh, operators who we might be able to partner with. So I just have time blocked chunks every single week and my calendar from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m. has something blocked in that time. And that keeps me on target and make sure that, you know, in this 30 minutes a day, I absolutely have to call somebody in my network to reach out because I believe if you make all the right actions over and over and over, the growth and the deals and the right opportunities will come. You don't have to just frantically evaluate 100 deals a week to find something. You can do activities systematically that, that grow you as a person, make you a stronger uh, partner, investor, and operator. And, and ultimately, you'll find the right deals and, and the right investors to do them with. Yeah, the time block is so important. Someone was telling me about that. They worked in a, um, a Fortune 100 company and they would time block out everything. And something I do now with like vision and planning stuff that's when you're working on the business and not in the business. Yeah. Those kind of things are, oh, I'll do that. I'll do that. And you never do it. When right. you time block it, it's like, oh, it's, you know, 2 p.m. or whatever. Like, this is what I have to do on this day. And you actually will do it. Um, if it's so on a to do list, yeah, it's not going to be. You have to set a time for it and you have to stick to it. But yeah. awesome. So um, can you uh, let us know about your author, your speaker, your mentor, all your different teaching that you, that you do with REI Mom? Sure. So I had the pleasure of being a part of a book um, by the publisher of Chicken Soup for the Entrepreneurial Soul. He was, um, his name is Kyle Wilson. And he was Jim Rohn's business partner for 18 years and just an amazing uh, promoter and marketer and just all around guy and connector. And so he asked me to be a part of this book. It's called Resilience, Turning Your Setback into a Comeback. Just amazing stories of resilience and, and encouraging other people to keep going when they hit the hurdles of life. And I share a little bit about my real estate journey there. 
I, I run a local meetup group called REI Like a Girl, where I reach out to other women and help them to get started uh, in real estate and, and to do it uh, like the girls do instead of like the guys do. A uh, little, little uh, play on words there. And then I, I do some coaching and, and mentoring of a handful of people at a time just to help them to kind of get started in, in buying real estate um, more so on their own, building their own small portfolio. Um, and then I also speak, you know, at various conferences around the country just to really encourage and inspire other people, especially women, to, to start taking control of the financial future and to start, you know, building some wealth through cash flowing real estate uh, to supplement their income and maybe eventually retire them so that they can spend more time with their families as well. Oh, that's awesome. So how can people learn more about you and your businesses? Sure. So I have a website, which is reimom.com uh, for coaching and speaking and, and some small mentoring. And then zenithcapitalinvestments.com is my website where we, we uh, talk about different uh, potential opportunities that we have for accredited investors. And then on Facebook, you can find me at Anna, REI Mom Kelly. All right, perfect. Well, I'll put all those links into the uh, the podcast and YouTube notes. And uh, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. And I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you so much. It's been my privilege to be your guest today. Have a nice day. Hi, guys. This is Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in investing in real estate and you don't know where to begin, set up a free 15-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Com. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.